morning, everybody. God bless you. It's my honor and privilege to be with you this morning and to share God's word with you. I want to talk this morning about something that I've titled God's worldview. Now, that's kind of a big topic, and I'm not going to be able to cover God's entire worldview in the next few minutes, but I wanted to bring up a portion of it anyway that really deals with uh, who we are in God's sight, what his view of us is as a community of people. All of us have a worldview. A worldview is a, it's a fundamental orientation of our heart. It's a commitment, and it can be expressed as a story. You know, a, a worldview involves the mind, but it's first and foremost a commitment, a matter of the heart and soul. It is really what we believe in our deepest self. Now, the question is, where do we learn the story that informs our worldview? Where do we come up with the ideas that formulate what we really believe is true, what's really real? Well, it's called a worldview because uh, it comes from the world for the most part. You know, the world is uh, filled with voices that give us many lessons. We have many teachers out there, but if you really boil it all down, if you reduce worldview to its essence, there are two basic worldviews. There's God's view, and there's everything else. And <coughs> we really want to be on the side of God's view of the world. We want to know what is really real from his perspective. Because if we know that, and we live it, and we apply it, then we are walking in the light of truth. If we don't, if we're walking according to some other view of reality, we are walking in darkness. Today, the story that really dominates the world view really has its roots in the Enlightenment in the 18th century. You may or may not know that, but trust me, all of us are inundated and just immersed in a philosophy that comes out of the Enlightenment period. Our founding fathers were great students of John Locke and others in the Enlightenment. Our philosophies as a country, and actually the entire Western world, and we pretty much exported it to the rest of the world too, is all predicated on a worldview that comes from that time. And essentially, that worldview is found in uh, the belief that reality is only in physical things. The universe, the stars, the earth, living things, including humans, are all explicable through science. And anything that is unexplained right now is just because we have yet to figure out how to explain it, but one day we will, including how the entire universe came from nothing. Uh, there are actually lots of theories about how that, that happened. Um, in this worldview, because there's nothing physical but atoms, then human beings are simply advanced animals, the product of chemistry and DNA informed by our environment, and human beings cease to have anything that is not physical, any non-material component. Well, so that takes care of soul, heart, self, consciousness. All of these things have been removed from what really constitutes the reality of human beings. We are simply amazing advanced animals with amazing brains, capable of reasoning, analyzing, computing far beyond our fellow living things. And through a yet-to-be-understood evolutionary process, we started with inorganic chemicals in a primordial soup, and over time, it, voila, we had human beings. And yes, we are very advanced, but we still bear the image of what we came from, which is just atoms. But yet we also feel a responsibility to rule the earth. We feel a responsibility for the earth, don't we? I mean, if, if a killer whale gets caught in ice flows in the 
North Pole, nations spend tens of millions of dollars to take three killer wells to safety. Why do we do that? I mean, most people would make the you know, cost-benefit analysis say, yeah, nah. No, we do it because we feel responsibility to the world. And that is where the false narrative, the false worldview overlaps with God's worldview. And to get at that, let's begin in Genesis. It's a good place to begin because he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I want you to take special note of that. The heavens had a point in time of creation. They had, they're not eternal. He created the heavens and the earth at the same time. And these two were together, just like they're together in the first verse. They were together in God's idea. And this is really important. It's one of the main themes of God's story is the coming together of these two realms, heaven and earth. And in Genesis 1 and 2, they form a place in a time where God can walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. And they collaborate, Adam and Eve and God collaborate in the work that needs to be done in this small portion of the earth as, it was as they originally inhabited it. But the mission that God gives them is to go from the small portion of earth and to expand all over the world. He wanted them to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish the earth. That's a big place. Imagine that. You're just two people in this little place. Beautiful. But here's your mission. God gives you this mission. I want you to be fruitful. Yeah, you better get on that. Multiply and replenish the entire planet and subdue it. And so he designs us with a body, soul, and particularly a spirit so that he can integrate with us, work with us, collaborate with us. And he calls us image bearers. We are made in his image. And Adam and Eve and their progeny would bear their God's image, his nature, into the whole earth. And as it says in Habakkuk, the vision was, and by the way, still is, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Fam the family and community of image-bearing humans, that original intention of God was to bear his image all over the world. But with the fall of Adam and Eve, God now, as the creator, I mean, this was his thing, now he's obligated to fix it. And we'll see how he does this. But interestingly, after the fall, one of the first things you see, and we'll read about it here, is quickly there's technological progress amongst human beings. I don't know if people think about that. But in Genesis, early on in the history of the human race, you see this amazing explosion of technology. Well, there's a reason for that. Because human beings have been cut off from the infinite resources of God, their creator. And they are now having to marshal finite resources on an earth that is, that's got thistles and thorns growing up. They are now in a position where they have to figure out how do we take care of ourselves. So they're motivated, man. And, and it says in Genesis 4, 17 through 22, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city right away. We're building cities, right? And he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and uh, Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusiel, and Methusiel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Now, Ada bore Jabal, and Jabal was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So what did Jabal do? Jabal, a progeny of Cain, 
developed agriculture. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. So the, the lyre and the pipe were music and arts. Zilla also bore Tubalcane, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, metallurgy and science. So you see very quickly, Genesis 4, human beings are building cities, marshaling resources, developing technology and progressing. But just as today, progress in science and technology then doesn't, it didn't bring progress in human character. In fact, the image-bearing abilities don't improve with increasing knowledge of the material realm. In Genesis, as it is today, there was a rather quick degradation of human beings in early Genesis there, to the point where God said in Genesis 6 that every thought of their heart is only evil continually. But he finds favor with Noah and saves him and his family, and after some issues like the Tower of Babel and other things, we come to a tremendous milestone in God's story, and that's the calling of Abram. And this is such a tremendous event. I want you to really think about the grace that God is displaying here. Grace is not something just in the church. Grace has been involved forever, forever. And look at this. To accomplish his goal now of fixing the problem of I, I had an image-bearing couple. They were going to have kids, and they were going to create a community that would then display my nature and take it to the nation, to take it around the world. So now I've got to fix that. And he goes to this guy, Abram. Interestingly, a guy whose wife is bar barren and very old, and so is he. A guy who doesn't have any land at all. He's a nomad. And so with this guy, he says, you're going to be a father of many nations, and I'm going to give you a land. And Abram had to be something like, <laughs> what? What are you talking about? But he believed God. He believed God, and God creates this Life <coughs> within Sarah's womb, Isaac. Amazing, a miracle boy, right? And then he creates a, a family and an entire community of Israel from the progeny of Abraham. And then a few things happen, and he rescues them from death by a Passover that occurs in Egypt, and from, uh, he rescues them from, from exile and slavery in Egypt through a miracle of the Red Sea parting, and he brings Moses, his man, to Mount Zion. And he gives him a law. He gives him the, the law that, if practiced, will ensure this nation of people will be absolutely flourishing, blessed beyond measure. And, he, and in, this, in this context, he's given them the law. He says, you do this, and you will flourish. And then he says, really importantly here, he says, I want you to build me a tabernacle. Now, why would he want that? Why does he want a tabernacle? Because he wants, again, to dwell with his people in the Garden of Eden. He walked in the garden in the cool of the day. He hung out with Adam and Eve. He has not been able to dwell with his people. And so the tabernacle becomes what is called a microcosmos, a small version of the original heaven and earth temple, so to speak. And in this tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, God's Shekinah glory, his presence shows up and dwells with his people. But all of this wasn't so the law and the temple and the feasts and, you know, Israel would gather. It wasn't to make them some sort of exclusive little body of people relative to the rest of the world and sequester them, you know, so God would just be with them. It was through Israel that God was going to reach all the nations as he had covenant with Abraham, that he would be a father of many nations and in him all nations would be blessed, not just Israel. 
And we see this same kind of mission later when Solomon builds the temple, which replaces the tabernacle. And when, when Solomon dedicates the temple, look what he says. And this is in the middle of his dedication. He says, also concerning the foreigner, the other nations, who, who are not of your people Israel, when they come from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. How, is, how are they going to hear about that? They're going to hear about the story that God is playing out in the people of Israel. And they're going to go, these people of other nations are going to go, well, I don't know what's going on with these guys, but they are rocking it, and I want to be part of that. And so they're going to show up. And when they come and they pray toward this house that he was dedicating, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know, that, may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. That is fantastic, isn't it? I mean, what an opportunity that Israel had. They had... God dwelling in their midst, now in a fixed temple, a gorgeous place where his Shekinah glory dwelt with them. They had the law. They had all sorts of, they had social times together. The feasts were, were celebrations. They were social times. God is into us partying together and coming together to rejoice and to have fun and to enjoy his presence with us. This is what Israel had. And from that, they were supposed to then be a place that all nations would, would be able to see God's hand stretched out in their favor and then wanted. What happened to Israel, though? Rather than being the image-bearing of, of people of God, they became disobedient. They became idolatrous. They were embarrassing even to the idolatrous Gentiles. And in Ezekiel, we read that the presence of God leaves the temple. That had to be spiritually one of the most horrible moments in the history of the world that God actually says, I am out of here, and leaves the temple, and Israel is in exile. Now, at the time of Jesus, about 550 years later or so, Israel is still in exile, and they are still wondering why God hasn't come back. He left, you know, centuries before, but there was always the promise that he would come back, and he had not come back together, and he hadn't brought them together out of exile. And they were looking for a Messiah, someone like in Psalm 2 who would come and rise up and set up a kingdom again and break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel and that you know this guy would come in and really establish Israel as a kingdom again and kind of kick butt. But instead, the covenant relationship with Abraham was consummated in the birth and life of Jesus Christ. The promised seed of Genesis 3 in the Abrahamic covenant had come. It says in Galatians that when God promised Abraham that in your seed all nations will be blessed. He it says not in seeds as of many, but in one seed, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the promised seed of Genesis. He was the promised seed that God had given to Abraham. And you know, so God, rather than returning in the form of taking dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem, he returns in Christ. And John chapter 1 in the Gospel of John, it kind of recapitulates Genesis 1 because it starts right in the, in the beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this, the word logos is that word, word. And so it talks about this logos, which was with God, which are his thoughts, his intents, his purposes, and the words that come out of that. That is all contained in this word logos. And then what does God say about 
Jesus Christ. In John 14, it says, and the Logos became flesh. Whoa, what was that like to be Jesus Christ? And now you are the, a container for the Logos of God. And then it says in John 14, it says, the word became flesh and took residence. It's the word tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth who came from the Father. This is a perfect symmetry, right? I mean, this is the narrative continues. This is the same story, but now God has now, he's executing his purposes in Christ. He's not showing up in a tabernacle. He's not showing up at temple. Now he's showing up in the form of his son who tabernacles with us. And we behold him full of grace and truth. And we behold the glory of the one who came from the father. Even in John 16, when Jesus Christ says, you know, destroy this temple. And in three days, you know, it'll be raised up. And then it goes on. The editorial remark by John says that he was talking about his body. So Jesus Christ knew that now this presence of God that was in him, you can destroy this physical body, but you can't destroy the presence of God. In three days, it will be raised up. You can't stop it out because this is God's story. This is his view. It doesn't matter what you think. This is what's real, and this is what's coming to pass. The resurrection of Christ in his ascension to a newly exalted position for for, for God's man. Think about that. So Adam had dominion. Adam and Eve had dominion over what? The earth. Jesus Christ had dominion over the earth when he was here, did he not? He commanded the storms to, to stop. He kicked out the rulers of the darkness of the world in the form of devil spirits. He faced down the devil in temptations. He, he had total command over the things happening here on earth. But when he ascended, what else? did he have rulership over? The things in heaven. If you read Colossians 1, he reordered principalities and powers in heaven. This is the exalted position that Jesus Christ has taken. And, and this then was followed on the day of Pentecost by him doing what? He sent the Spirit of God first into 12 people and later that same day about 3,000 people. And why is that significant? Is, is this a new, totally different story? No, it's a continuation of the story. Now, because of Christ's accomplished work, because God raised him from the dead and put, you know, put a stake in the ground and said, the restoration of all things starts here. And with that, he then sends the Holy Spirit and the restoration continues in the form of now those who are born, not of Abraham, but in his lineage, but sons of Abraham nonetheless because they are children of faith, of believing, as God calls it. We are all children of the faith of Abraham, but we are born not through his lineage, but through the Spirit. We are born from above now. And with that, it's, it's a whole new community now. The people who received it on Pentecost and those of us who have received it in the thousands of years from that time are called new creations. We are called to be conformed to the image of God's Son. So we are now image bearers for God, conformed to the image of the one who came to give us that capacity to be image bearers again. 
And what happened on the day of Pentecost, or what happened quickly after the Pentecost event? What is one of the first things you see in the book of Acts? And they were all what? Together. And had all things common. Breaking bread and being together from house to house. Why? Because God has always called humankind from Adam and Eve to this present to be in a community. We have so emphasized the individualistic kind of righteousness that Christ gave us. We so think about the individual and how it's affected our individual lives. We, we in a sense, make the community of faith secondary. But the purposes of God and his worldview has always been, it's not about individuals, it's about community. It's always been that way and it's still that way because it is in that community and by that community that God moves into the world. Always has been that way. And that's why it says in Colossians, it says, it is Christ in you. But that word you is plural. It's you as a community. We as a community of new creations are newly formed image bearers. We have the indwelling of Christ via the Spirit. And we are the answer to Christ's prayer in John 17 when he prayed and said that they would be one. You and me and I and them, that they would be made perfect in one. In Galatians 6, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. So this, you know, you will lose this continuity of the story if you think of, well, Israel was then, we're now, they're over. No, God didn't forsake Israel. If you had asked the apostle Paul, are you Christian? He would like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm a Jew, but I, do, I know this. My, my compadres who don't know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that God raised from the dead have missed the entire point of the story. They don't get God's worldview. They've missed it, but it's in the scriptures. And so, yes, I'm Jewish, but I'm a Jew who understands Christ has come and everything has changed. Everything has changed. And so he had to reframe the entire Old Testament in the context of, my gosh, this is the Messiah. And he's way beyond anything we even imagined. The dude got up from the dead and has now resurrected. He is in heaven, and he is now the Lord over this church, this body, which is a, a group of new creations. You know, <laughs> that's why we exist. Grace Christian Fellowship, or any church for that matter, the church exists to make a community so that we can come together and we can strive together in faith and we can learn what it's like to be bound together in a community for God. God's worldview is a lot more than that. I can't share the entire worldview today. But his worldview does include his church and his family. And it's, it's a place of his dwelling. And the world desperately needs this. We need to see a, a community of people who are united and not divided. United by love, this perfect bond. This world is so divided by race, ethnicity, gender, cultural background. You know, it's, it, we need to see a community of believers who can show the way where there is neither Jew or Gentile, there's neither male or female, slave or free, Black, white, brown, Democrat, Republican, all of this is blown away in the community that is one in Christ, one in the faith regarding Jesus Christ. How bad do, the, I mean, how much does the world need this right now? This is our job. 
This is not some sort of optional equipment. You know, it's great that you got saved and you're waiting for Christ to come back and in the meantime be a good person. And you know, if you go to church now and then at school, you completely miss God's worldview. His view is, no, I called you all to a family and a community and a place where I will dwell. And through you, through that community, we will reach the world. <laughs> so it is really time for the church, including Grace Christian Fellowship and any other church to rise up to see this calling, to see this purpose, to understand that this is the hope of our calling, that God has hope in this and has invested us with power and invested this entire community with his presence, you know, and that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of this calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us? Think about that. The exceeding greatness of his power. Do we need a little bit of power of God right now? Yes, if we're going to unify, you, you can't do it on your own. You need his grace. You need his power. And that's what he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far above all principality and power, political, spiritual, institutional. There isn't anybody out there, I don't care who they are, who can overcome this power. And that's what's invested in us. And he gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of God who fills all in all. And that's what I wanted to share. Thank you.